Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot goes well with both red and white and is perfect with a workout of your choice. Our co-hosts are on both coasts and they have all of NBA Nation covered. Adam Stanko in the Bay Area and Noah Kozlov in the Big Apple. Catch and Shoot podcast. We're recording this on Monday afternoon, less than 24 hours after the official start of free agency. I'm Noah Kozlov out on the East Coast. Adam Stanko out on the West Coast. Adam? Yes, yes, sir. I'm here. We've got Will Purdue coming up. Four-time NBA champion, one through with the Bulls, one with the Spurs. He's an analyst now on NBC Sports Chicago. But I'm I'm interested to hear how you were consuming all the free agency stuff on Sunday. Um, I uh, I'm lucky I'm still married because uh, I was unable to pay attention to any of my family members, my wife, my kids. I there was so much going on that mostly so i had like the jump was doing some of their coverage but they were kind of behind with what was with what was going on i i tried to hear when marks was on and stuff like that but but for the most part really I, it was just on my phone just refreshing twitter hoops hype trying to get any information and what makes it extra tricky i think Noah, is a lot of times now it's fine when a guy agrees to a deal that's all well and good and you know when it's a max deal and even the lesser known guys, like their numbers are usually going to come out pretty quickly. But it's like when it's a sign in trade, now you hear that it's a sign in trade, but the pieces still have to be worked out. And that can take a little while. And so that part gets a little bit confusing because that's where you really got to like hone in on stuff. And even even still, there were so much movement that some of the bigger name guys, until I happened to have a phone call with you at one point during the day. I didn't even realize that Vucevic had, had done a deal, which was done basically the night before free agency mm-hmm. started, that that was being reported. So, um, yeah, I, I was basically all on my phone, Twitter, Hoopsype, refreshing the whole time and looking whenever Woj just dominated the coverage. Yeah, I mean, I was really just refreshing Woj's handle. And I, th- I <laughs> think you're I good. Th- and I think it's another, I think that's a whole nother conversation. Basically the the monopoly, I mean, Shams gets some stuff, but like the monopoly of that Woj has at ESPN is is a whole nother conversation. It's it's a, almost should be like some sort of case study. But I was lucky, Marissa was so exhausted. We were, uh, we were at a friend's house on Saturday all day uh, out in Connecticut. And then she was at the pool on Sunday and she was, she was worn out. She was, I, I think she was asleep at like eight 30. So, wow. I, I didn't Look have at to, you. I didn't have to, I didn't have to ignore anybody. Daughter was asleep. Marissa was asleep. And I was just, I had the TV on. I, I talked to you a little bit. I had Twitter going. I was getting some texts with some folks. 
it's fairly simple to be honest with you. Um, but, but, you know, it's funny. The, I, I do, I do laugh. Like when you, know, you look at some of the Woj comments underneath, like, Hey, let us fall asleep. Let us sleep. Let us sleep. I'm like, well then uh, just go to bed. Right. Like, like the Reggie Bullock signing is going to be there in the morning. Like go to sleep. It's all going to be there. That's the right. funniest part of all. Go to, just it's... go to bed. Just go to bed. Like I, I shut, I shut it off before, uh, I think I shut it off around like 1030. Again, and I and I didn't have any sort of anxiety. But look, if I'm if you're if you have to report on it, or if I knew that I'd have to give reaction last night, and and you did a great job with the the quick hitters on Pure Hoops Media, so I hope everybody checks those out on the pot and podcast form. Reaction to free agency, sure, it's it's a different story. But yeah, if you want to go to sleep, go to sleep. Yeah, you'll you'll find out that Taj Gibson and Bobby Portis were on one plus ones. You know, with how the team about option. Bobby Portis? How about the next game, Bobby Portis, the the thirty one mil? Good for him. Good for him. <laughs> Good for him. Good for him. That's Mike Wise money. Speaking of Mike Wise, Mike Wise show on Pure Hoops Media. So check out his podcast that comes out every week. Hours, of course, catch and shoot and buckets, boards and blocks with Monica McNutt and the Pure Hoops show with Eric Newman and NBA champion BJ Armstrong. We got all sorts of things on the Pure Hoops Media podcast. And BJ's agent and BJ's uh, player got, got got some money from the Detroit Pistons. So his his big guy, Derek Rose, mm-hmm. his client. Right, that's Derek. That's Derek Rose. It's, it's it's crazy that at this point in Derek Rose's career, he's getting fifteen million. I think it's I think it's great. I'm 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 really I am I'm, I'm really happy for him. So before we get to Will Purdue, Adam, let's lay out the spread. Time to hit the spread. And as much as I really do want to to dive into you know how Bobby Portis fits into the pick and roll and what Taj Gibson can mean for a locker room I, I really do think deep dives are are worthy there i do just want to ask and this is what the spread will be today is what do we learn about the league from this free agency period and again we're less than 24 hours removed from the start of free agency as we record this less than 24 hours and yet the as we're recording this the only big name out of let's say the top 25 that has not um, had a deal agreed upon is Kawhi Leonard. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty fascinating that all these these guys have uh, have sort of come to terms uh, with teams and and some of the sign and trades have worked out. I I think the biggest takeaway Noah for me and I think it's a stat. Um, if you look at the All Star game from 2017, ten starters in that All Star game, seven of which are on new teams. 2018's 10 starters, six are on new teams. And if you look at the 2019 All-Star game, the 10 starting players from that All-Star game, if Kawhi Leonard were to leave the Raptors, five would be on different teams. And so I think we've seen just a total shift in how teams can acquire players. Granted, this free agency class was huge. No question about that. One of the greatest of all time. But I think just in terms of how teams should go about building their franchises, building their organizations and how they're acquiring talent. Like I think we're starting to see a shift away from just total tank mode for a bunch of teams. Maybe a couple will still try to do it. And I also think that culture matters and and players are looking at other factors in terms of how they get their rings or at least their chase for rings. And and as I've said a million times, their chase for legacy. What's your takeaway? Yeah, and I think that 
this time around, because there's been look like forty percent of the league was free agent, so there's there's right. money to be there's money to be made. But I think and and we knew this once. You know, even if KD had re-signed with the Warriors, once KD got hurt, things were going to be wide open next year, and especially with and especially with Clay getting hurt. So yes. there are there are so many more avenues for guys to actually think. You know what? I can get paid a little bit here, and you know maybe I can win a title. Like look at the additions in Utah. I think Utah before Kawhi signs is you know a top three team in the Western Conference. Um, they might even be favorites to win the Western Conference. It's wild what's going on in Houston, and Daryl Moore is still he's still trying. Um, right. But if, but if but if Kawhi again, as we record this, Kawhi is not signed. If Kawhi ends up signing with the Lakers, then there then that is that's the team to beat. No matter how else they fill out their roster, those three guys of Kawhi and AD and LeBron are, would be the team to beat. Um, but I think it does show how wide open how wide open the league is and the enthusiasm for the regular season is something that I think the league needs. So even, even the enthusiasm over a JJ Reddick signing, because there aren't that many JJ Reddicks in this league, JJ Reddick signing in new Orleans, the Pelicans. And I'm not just trying to overhype Zion. Like, like the Pelicans are going to be fighting for a playoff spot this year. Yes. And they are. Yeah, yeah, they're they're gonna be fighting for a playoff spot. So, I think there's there's a lot of different ways that certain players, and it's not just it's not just money, but I do wish that some guys would say like Kevin Durant in, in Howard Beck's piece. Um, it was said that on Bleach Report he wrote this this long piece about KD and Kyrie Irving going back months and trying to figure this out how to do this together, and the 17 wins for the Knicks wasn't enough, so they turned their attention to the Nets. But Kevin Durant wanted to go somewhere where basketball was the focus. Like, all right, pal, <laughs> you just came from Golden State where no team played more basketball in the past five years. So basketball was the focus, but he was talking about all the drama. Okay, so you don't want drama, so you can go play with Kyrie? Okay, all right. So I, I do wish some of the players would just stop lying and just say, hey, you know, Kyrie's one of my best friends. I think we're going to win a title together. All right, so that's why, and that's why we're playing together and we want to be in Brooklyn. I wish which, guys would just just be honest. Which goes to something else, Noah, too, which is, I mean, Kevin Durant was annoyed all season long because he kept getting asked about his impending free agency. And yet these guys love this. Like, you can't have it both ways. If you don't want to commit to a team long term, that's fine. But fans and the media are going to ask you, where are you going to be next season? And if you're sitting there with... um you know, your contract expiring at the end of the year and your your impending free agency is staring you in the face, you're going to get asked about that. And so, yeah, th- this idea that, that guys aren't, aren't even honest, even when they make their decisions, like it's just, I, I guess it, it sort of goes both ways. There's the, pl- that's the, the angle from the player's perspective. On the flip side, what is it that they owe us? I think is the question. And what is it that, that they want that that we want from them. It's like we want these guys to win their championships. And yet, you know, you and I had this discussion yesterday, but it's like how they go about winning those championships. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I said I said this all the time that fans want the, the fans judge players based on rings. And then then many in the media do too. But fans will let's stick with the fans here. Fans judge players based on rings, but they want it to be nearly impossible to get a ring. Well, teams, the teams and players that win rings, the great players, 
always have a great teammate. No, no one's ever won a title by themselves. Okay. The Sixers were never winning that title in 01. What Iverson did, that that's the outlier, just getting there and even winning a game in 01 with the Sixers. So uh, there there is you can't have everything. The players don't not only the players owe us, so owe fans anything. They owe right. what they owe the fans is to put on a show and give it their all because it's the fans that are paying their salaries. Yes. That that's that's all they owe. That's all they owe the fans. Just to do their jobs. Yeah. And I don't I also don't think, Adam, that the the media wasn't asking Kevin Durant incessantly about his no. contract situation well, either. So that just shows that KD is constantly looking at social media and reading things. So if you want to shut if you want to shut that part down, you got to do that on your own because it's not in it's not in his face. You have to seek that out. Yes. All of this is true. And and no, it's it's a weird thing to look at this the current state because ever since the super teams were established and you know, you go back to what uh, the Celtics did when it was Pierce and Garnett and Ray Allen. And then of course the Heatles and, and what they set up. And then we saw this warriors dynasty come together. It, it sort of became the situation where you can no longer, I mean, you just said it certainly has always been the case in the NBA, but nowadays for sure, it's going to take at least two superstars to get it done. And the way the teams are stacking up together like you have to find a way. So it how we judge these champions is what's going to be interesting in historically. And I think that the Durant thing is just sort of a, a unique situation in that KD is looking for this perfect thing and wants to be loved in the perfect way. You know, he he could have tried to do it in OKC, but said, no, I'm going to go to Golden State where I know I'm going to win titles and it's going to be awesome. We're going to be one of the greatest teams ever. And guess what? All those things happened and he won finals MVPs. And he was, he became one of the best players in the world. I mean, he already was, but he became even more recognized for that. But he, but it wasn't treated as in the GOAT conversation. So I, if he goes to Brooklyn and wins it, what then? I, it's, it, it's pretty wild that, that, that that's the case. But also right now, just seeing how guys are sort of lining up and saying, I'm going to determine my future. And now can I do it with people that I want to play with and, and what have you? And I think what's the most fascinating part to me is that executives run this league and the best executives. And we saw, I think there's no greater example than what David Griffin has done with New Orleans. You brought up the idea of them being potentially a playoff team. But in addition to that, they're young, they're athletic. They've got a ton of assets. They've got a ton of draft picks. And he just changed that that organization seemingly overnight, it looked like, what are they going to do without Anthony Davis? No one's ever going to want to play there. And then look what David Griffin does. And I think the best executives always find a way to get themselves out of bad situations. And they're always putting themselves in good situations. And that is to me, this ultimate takeaway, Sean Marks as well in Brooklyn, turning a bad situation on its head over just the last few years. Every organization, Adam, wants to sell culture. And yep. there's always the question of, all right, well, does culture come with winning or does winning lead to the good culture? Well, what David Griffin is doing in, in New Orleans is he's starting the culture. And what Sean Marks has done in Brooklyn, it's, they are starting the culture and they are building culture before the winning comes. And that is that is really difficult to do. Let's get to... Guy's been part of some great cultures. Three-time champion with the Bulls, one with the Spurs. 
That's Will Purdue. That was dope. We're joined now by Will Purdue. Spent 13 years in the league, a four-time champ. Threw at the Bulls, again with the Spurs, the 11th overall pick in 1988 out of Vanderbilt. Well, what was your first experience with free agency like? My first experience with free agency was fairly simple. Because you got to remember, so I signed, I was drafted and signed by the Bulls to a five-year deal. And once that deal was towards completion, I actually elected to re-sign with the Bulls um, because of what had happened and what I thought the future was going to consist of. More championships, Michael Jordan. So I didn't technically, I mean, I did, but I didn't technically, you know, challenge the free agent market. Um, let's just say I, I, I probably should have, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I should have, but yet I was comfortable with Chicago. I loved the city. I, I had envisions of the future and winning more championships. So I elected to, to go, I guess you could say the easy route and continue to uh, ride in the uh, wake of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. So, Will, when, when, before you hit free agency itself, during the season, what was it like in terms of the conversations that teams would have with you or your agent indirectly? Because, you know, now we hit, you know, 6 o'clock Eastern, on free agency day and all of a sudden it's like boom all these deals happen and everyone goes wait wait, wait what about tampering so back when when you were playing in the early stages of your uh, free agency period what was it like during the season before you even hit free agency in terms of how teams might contact you or your agent well it was actually very quiet because it, it's you know things back then didn't happen like they do now because that's that's the other thing i'm like here we are basically 90 seconds into free agency and we got all these woes bombs and all these guys have agreed to all these deals. I'm like, I mean, is this like a, one of those auctions that people do, you know, <laughs> yeah. he'll give me three, he'll give me three. You know, did, did they, did these guys do conference calls with like four different teams and then they just basically sold themselves to the highest bidder. But that's just, what the league is, I, I forgot what I was watching yesterday, and somebody mentioned, listen, tampering only exists during the season. In the offseason, it technically doesn't exist. And so that's just how things have changed. But back then, you know, my, my agent was out, you know, Bill Blakely at the time was out sniffing around and seeing what kind of interest there were. But a lot of teams didn't really want to go down that route. They would basically just off the record say, hey, we're interested, but we're not going to get any in-depth conversation. Let's just talk once the season is completed and he officially becomes a free agent. Well, why then? I'm, I'm, I saw an article back from November of 99. Why did Pop accuse you of tampering? when you went after you were traded to the Spurs and then you ended up re-signing with the Bulls? You know, that's, that's a good one, though, because, um, you know, it was kind of interesting, the whole thing with the Spurs. Um, you know, we won the championship in 99, and actually one of my best years ever was the year prior to that, the 97-98 season. You know, we lost to Utah. 
And, um, you know, to be very honest, Pop came to me after the season and just said, listen, man, I can't thank you enough for the things you've done for this organization, how you've played. Um, it's really time for us to sit down and work on a contract extension. Hmm. And I was like, sweet. This is, you know, I don't want to necessarily pit myself out. I'm towards the end of my career. I love it here. You know, I saw bigger things on the horizon, much like I did in Chicago. Cause you know, you think you're going to get traded, but you know, you never know you're going to get traded, but even in San Antonio, I liked it there. And then bam, you know, the lockout happens. We start the 99, eventually the 99 season starts. So I can't negotiate a new contract. The, the tone changes. Well, let's just wait till the end of this upcoming season now because we couldn't negotiate that contract in the off season. I get hurt uh, like what seven or eight games into an abbreviated season. And I had a great start in those first seven or eight games. So, you know, I was, I was looking at big numbers, looking at a big contract, going to settle in. And then because I got hurt, they were like, all right, let's wait till the end of the season. And then when I got waited till the end of the season, you know, I don't know if Pop felt that, that Jerry Krause was doing something undermined that my agent, Arntellum, was doing something, you know, behind closed doors. But we really weren't. And I think part of that was is just Pop was not happy that I elected not to come back to San Antonio. And, I, I, you know, I think that, you know, his emotions got involved because him and I had a very strong relationship. And I love the fact that Pop was honest. He was up front. And it was just unfortunate that I got hurt in that so-called renegotiation kind of went awry. And there was a number that Arn and I would accept. And there was a minimum that we would accept. And if the Spurs weren't willing to meet that minimum, then we were going to look elsewhere. Arn, I thought, did the right thing. He said, listen, as your agent, I have to do my due diligence. There's other offers out there. He showed me those offers, and he, he always reminded me, I know you want to stay in San Antonio, but we have other offers, and I have to, I ha and it's, I have to do my due diligence to show you what those offers were, and because the Bulls were one of them, uh, I ended up going that route, and Pop was not happy. Because hmm. in, in, that, in that same piece, it said that Pop was pissed off that he said that you said that Duncan might not re-sign with the Spurs. Well, I, I had, I mean, I, I made a phone call because let's, let's be very clear here. I wanted to stay with San Antonio. Mm -hmm. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, I love the city. I love the fans. I love the organization. I love Greg Popovich. But I had a conversation. Listen, I made a phone call to Tim Duncan and to pretty much everybody on that team, you know, I'm not asking you to tell me something and stand by your word because I know as an individual, somebody could be traded, somebody could be injured. Something could go awry as I learned being traded from the Bulls to San Antonio. Just kind of give me an idea of what you think your future looks like because I'm trying to make a decision oh. and I'm trying to make an ed educated decision. I talked to Tim and Sean Elliott and David Robinson and, I mean, I can go down the list of Malik Rose and, you know, nobody outside of David gave me a hundred percent guarantee that I'm staying here. I'm finishing my career here. Tim owed it to himself to test the free agent market 
as did every other player, mm-hmm. especially when you're Tim Duncan. Or in this case, this class, Kevin Durant, Kyrie. There's, you know, where you want to stay and where you end up going can be two different things. And sometimes, you know, you have to do what's best in a business sense and not necessarily go with your heart. And that's what agents or slash lawyers or representatives are for. And if Pop didn't like the fact that I told him that there was no guarantee that Tim was staying, then I, you know, I'm sorry about that. But that I tried to make the best educated decision for myself for where I was going to play in my future. Because yeah, at the end of the day, I was toward the end of my contract. Toward, toward the end of my lifespan in the NBA, should we say. Well, all that being said, an incredible story. Um, the way the landscape is currently in the NBA, if you were looking at a free agency decision, what types of factors do you think you would put in to, to making that list today? Well, I think the first thing I would do, and, and that's the other thing, you know, if I had the – the ability to do it again in hindsight being 2020, I would have stayed with the Spurs and taken less money, but your pride gets in the way. Emotions get involved. It's just, it's not that easy. And I wish that I would have just sucked it up, picked up the phone, removed Arn Tellum from the equation because Arn was just doing his job. Arn did nothing wrong, but remove Arn from the equation, go over to pop's house, which I had been over to many times to have meals, conversations, wine. I should have done that and just gotten this thing done and moved on because I missed out on championships. I missed out on, you know, some guaranteed money. Um, I think that free agents now need to take, take things into consideration. For a perfect example, let's use Jimmy Butler, right? Well, let's just stop saying, Jimmy, that it's about winning, that it's about the money. Mm-hmm. And at the end, I think he's going to regret that decision. I think he needed to get his money, and that's where he got it from. Now, he's a different class than me because I was never in that class of one of the best two-way players in the game because I truly believe he is. But the one thing that I always have and will never have to give up is the fact that I was very fortunate to win four championships, as as Noah noted when we started out this discussion. And I feel something special when I go somewhere. And a perfect example is this past weekend, my son is going to be a sophomore in high school. We played in a lacrosse tournament up in Mason, Ohio. And we didn't win the championship. But as I was packing up the car, these kids from Ohio came up to me that were there playing with their team. And they were only 12 or 13 years old. And, you know, asked me if I could take a picture with them, asked me if I could give them their autograph. And I know, I mean, most of that came from their father, but it's one of those things that as the dad says, hey, that guy played with Michael Jordan. That guy won a championship with the Chicago Bulls, you know, there's a allure to that. You know, you see the, 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 the look on somebody's face when they hear that, especially a young kid that, you know, if I didn't stay in Chicago or if I had won a championship in San Antonio, that wouldn't exist. You know, everybody's always going to know about Kobe, Tim Duncan, you know, the, the top players. 
but there's guys like me, you know, mid-level guys, I guess you could say that you really need to think about, you know, how your career plays out. Because do you want to be looked at as a guy that, you know, hey, in my case, played 13 years and then nobody remembers you? But, hey, I made a lot of money and I'm good and I drive a nice car and live in a big house. <laughs> or do you want to be somebody that, that, that people remember for certain reasons? Because a lot of these guys, you know, if you remove players out of Philly or you remove a guy out of Denver or you remove a guy out of Phoenix, People don't know who you are. And I'm not saying that, hey, it's nice to have people remember who you are, but I just feel like I have something that's special that uh, unfortunately other guys don't have. And, you know, Patrick Ewing and I are, are friends, but there's a certain part of him that eats away every time I come around because, you know, he knows that I have something that he doesn't. That's a championship. And I'm not saying, well, it was because of me that we won the championship, but I was part of that team. I made the necessary sacrifices. I put in the work. And that's something that, unfortunately for him, when people talk Patrick Ewing, they talk about, man, one of the best centers of all time. But Charles Barkley, one of the best forwards, power forwards, players, however you want to talk about it. But Carl Malone, one of the best power forwards of all time. But so – you know, it, it's unfortunate, but I have something that, you know, I can always hang my hat on and something that I truly believe that I was part of that is special. And because of that, people remember me. It's not that I'm so hooked on people remembering me, but it's the reason why that makes me proud. But also then it, it gets down to something that players then have to, or role players, especially then if you're talking about role players, have to then ask themselves how much money is worth sacrificing to be in the position that you're in now with four rings. And that's, that's different for every individual player. Sure. Quite honestly. And it's really hard Noah for somebody that hasn't won a championship to really answer that question because they don't know how it will impact them. And I think the perfect guy or should I say the perfect example for that right now is Danny Green. He's a free agent. Mm -hmm. And here we are, you know, 24 hours. We're not even 24 hours into the process, and the free agent market's drying up. Money's drying up. Danny Green, to my knowledge, as we speak, has not signed. And what is it that everybody's talking about they need? We need shooting. Mm -hmm. We need guys that can knock down threes. We need guys that can spread the floor. Why isn't this guy signed? Because he's picking and choosing where he's going. As he watches these contracts be signed, he's just as good as some of these guys, or maybe even better. But I think now that he's won a championship in San Antonio, he's won a championship in Toronto, he knows the value of that and is willing to take less money to put himself in a real situation to have a real chance to win another championship. Because that's Winning championships also is like a drug. It's addictive because once you've won one and understand what it's like to win one and how it changes you and how it changes your life and the perception of how people look at you, it can be very addictive and you want to win another one. And that's where you have to, and if you've never given that opportunity, you may not, you may talk about winning championships, 
but are you, you're probably not willing to make that sacrifice to make it, to have a realistic opportunity to do that. Now, that being said, I'm not sure that even I would give up $10 million over a three-year contract to actually win a championship. It's really hard to say because, you know, the thing is that people also don't think about, and this is big picture thinking. And unfortunately, you know, I think some people are so focused on in the box thinking that it's not necessarily people like, well, he could have gone to, let's just use a team and just say, he could have gone to the Lakers and played with uh, the Brow, LeBron, whoever else they bring in and won a championship and signed, um, you know, uh, a three-year, uh, $15 million contract. But no, he chose to go with the money and sign a three-year, $30 million contract, twice as much. That's hard to turn it. That's hard to turn down, but also it's not just $15 million. It's $15 million minus half for taxes, seven and a half minus 4% for your agent. When it's all said and done, you know, it's really only a difference of $6 million, let's say, because you're going to spend some of it. But then let's amortize that $6 million over 30 years. What is that $6 million then actually worth? Mm -hmm. A lot more than what you're thinking about at that time, because a lot of these guys, you know, they may not have finished college. They don't necessarily have a secondary skill. So they need that money because that's the other thing. You start living a certain lifestyle. When your career's over, do these guys have the ability to rein it back in so that when they hit 60, because now they're only 36 or 37, do they still have any money left and have they invested it properly to where they can retire and just disappear? So what do you, as a former player, us as, as fans, members of the media, put sort of value judgments on what guys do and where they go and what they're chasing ultimately with rings and whether they win them with other people, knowing how difficult it is to win a championship and playing on some great teams, contributing to some great teams yourself. What do you personally think of when you see guys wanting now to play with, with other superstars and put together these superstar teams through free agency? I mean, it kind of aggravates me because it's just, I, I think it, it, I think on a whole, it hurts the league. It makes those specific teams very interesting. Yeah. Everybody's going to want to, everybody's been watching the golden state warriors, but I think as, as they won championships, people started watching more because they wanted them to lose and they wanted them to win. And then the Lakers are going to take that role and the, and the Houston Rockets and and now you're talking about the Brooklyn Nets and blah, blah, blah. I would love to see, you know, more parity in the league because I think that would help the league overall make every game more exciting instead of certain games. You know, I'm gonna, we're going to see the Lakers on ESPN and ABC how many times, the maximum number of times allowable. And there's going to be some good teams that aren't going to get enough airtime. And, and that's unfortunate. But that's just the route that the league has gone. And I get it. So if you can get paid and give yourself a realistic chance to win a championship, 
then I think you're checking two boxes. And those are, those are the type of things that necessarily weren't available back when I played. You didn't necessarily have super teams and you couldn't manipulate the system and put guys together to make these super teams. So, you know, you try to find the best situation available. Now these, and that, that's also what's different than the league guys just, they weren't, they were friends, but they weren't that friendly that they talked about, Hey, you and I need to play together two years down the road, five years down the road. Because remember these guys start talking about when they did all these discussions is when they started playing on the Olympic team. Mm-hmm. And that didn't start until, uh, was that 84? Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Or 84 was the last college team, the right, last then, college team, right? Right. In 88, 88 was the last college team. Right. And then 92, the first, the first dream team. Yeah. Right. Well, 84 was the year that Jordan and Bobby Knight and those guys, and they won it. 88 is when they didn't win it. And that's right. when they changed the rules. The John Thompson team. Yep. Yeah. But so these guys, the only place that I, there were only two locations back in the day that guys played together or against each other. It was in Los Angeles when Magic used to run the show at UCLA and then in Houston when John Lucas used to have his guy, not necessarily his guys, but have his gym and guys would go to Houston and, and play and practice together. But you also didn't have the conversations that the guys have now. That kind of all started when they started doing the Olympic teams. And these guys were like, hey, this is fun, man. We need to play together. We need to be on the same team. And that's kind of when that everything kind of changed. Yeah, which but, is weird because Barkley and then Christian Leitner never teamed up together. That's weird. <laughs> you know, for some reason, I just I, I can't see that. I, I don't know. I guess I guess it's just that dream never became a reality. Yeah, yeah, right, right. They tried and tried to. Uh, Barkley tried to recruit Leitner. He just uh, he just wouldn't do it. I I want to go back to you said about those kids in Ohio approaching you at the uh, lacrosse tournament. Uh, how come none of them ever asked you? Hey, aren't you the guy who played with Bonzi Wells and Rashid Wallace? Um, I, I don't really get asked about the Jailblazers much. Well, can you, well, can, can you can you give us something about that about that season that was just typical, like a, a a typical shenanigans with that team that these days would be a story? Um, yeah, I got a lot of them. All right, good. I guess we got time. The, I'll give you two stories. One that revolves around the whole team in general. It was just so dysfunctional. I, I mean, listen, I had never experienced anything like this in my life. Um, you know, Mark Workentine, who at the time was the general manager, did a great job on selling me on Portland, did a great job on selling me on the team, the organization. Um, and quite honestly, they did everything. Let me see. Well, let's put it this way. There was NBA first class, and then there was the Portland Trailblazers first class because of who the owner was and how much money he had. Mm. And, right. you know, and I'll add another story to it. I remember when the season first started, I couldn't get into my locker at the practice facility because of the fact that the official team luggage was sitting in my locker and there was so much of it and it was stacked up in my locker. It looked like it was a shipping crate. Every, every possible piece 
and size of Toomey luggage that you could imagine <laughs> was now sitting in my locker, unbeknownst to me, I didn't ask for it, was sitting in my locker with Portland Trailblazers on it and my initials. Huh. And I literally walked in and I'm like, and it, well, this was everybody's locker in the practice facility locker. I'm like, the hell is this? They were like, this is your luggage. I'm like, well, do I got to pay for this? Because no <laughs> other team, the Spurs didn't do that. The Bulls didn't do that at the time. I said, what is What's going on here? They said, no, this is, this is yours. I'm like, you guys are actually giving this to me without me asking for it? They're like, absolutely. I was like, well, this is pretty cool. I'm liking this organization even more. So, you know, you – and then I remember in Portland, one of my friends used to come visit me. I would go to the equipment manager and I'd be like, hey, Jeff, can I, uh, can I get like a T-shirt for my buddy here so he can have a Portland trailer, Trailblazers T-shirt when he goes back uh, home? He goes, sure. He comes walking out with one of those 50-gallon garbage bags and he's got like three T-shirts, a couple pairs of shorts, a sweatshirt. I'm like, what's this? He goes, we want to make sure everybody knows who, who your friend's rooting for. And, he, uh-huh. you know, before that, if I, you know, with San Antonio or Chicago, I'd ask for a shirt. I'd get exactly what I asked for, one shirt. <laughs> but it was just, that was the thinking in Portland about there was NBA first class and there was Portland first class. And. You know, when they used to motivate guys to work out by if you worked out a certain number of days in a month, you got a gift at the end of the month. And I remember the strength coach walking in and being like, hey, well, here you go. And I'm like, what's this? He goes, you, you qualified. You worked out a certain number of days a month, which means you get the gift. I mean, there was one, one month it was a nice Portland Trailblazers money clip. One month it was a real nice leather uh, toiletry bag with your initials and the Portland Trailblazers on it. I'm just like, this is unbelievable. And that's, I think, the Portland Trailblazers won the one that set the precedence for doing that. And then obviously Cuban came in the league, and then he took it to the next level by putting Xboxes in everybody's locker, you know. But that was the good thing about Portland. The bad thing was the dysfunction. Well, and let me let me go back and continue with that for a second. Because it's <laughs> most teams – flew on 727s or 737s, you know, when they chartered. We were on our own personal 757 spread out that had three different zones on it for satellite TV. And I used to sit in one of the suites up front by myself. And when we traveled on Sundays, they would dial it in so I could watch the Bears game. Oh, wow. Wow. But it was just because of the owner and Microsoft, it was just a totally different organization and how they approach things. So I've given enough about the positives and and what money could buy. But the negatives was just the dysfunction amongst the players. Mike Dunleavy was the coach, and he unfortunately took a bad approach. You know, as a coach, it's, it's, you know, it's my way or the highway. Or I'm going to try to massage the situation, be your friend, let's all get along, kumbaya. But the problem is that goes well until you hit a little adversity and then the coach has got to put his foot down. Because once that happened, 
that turned into a lot of bickering between players and coaches, players and players. And there were a lot of uh, physical altercations amongst players, a lot of uh, FUs going back and forth between players and coaches. And I just was like in awe. I had never seen anything like this, much less allow something like this to happen. And a guy doesn't get suspended. A guy doesn't, well, I don't think he got fined. I don't know. But we had things like that happen numerous times. And a guy played the next night. We had something like that happen in practice. And the guy played the next night. And that was basically the demise of a very good team that never went anywhere. When you start going about, as you mentioned, Damon Stoudemire, Bonzi Wells, Arvidas Sabonis, Dale Davis. Now, listen, it wasn't everybody that this happened to but you know as players they see one guy get away with it they're like well hell if he gets away with it i'm gonna do it well if that guy gets away with it hell i'm gonna do it i mean think about it sean kemp had a great career but towards the end of his career it wasn't so great and we were already dysfunctional enough and they elected to try to bring sean kemp in and put him in amongst the mix (laughs) i mean let's just dump gasoline on a bonfire while we're at it so I mean that's just well who, ne- who never who never lost a fight who who never lost a fight on that team. Well, there was one guy you didn't approach, and one guy you knew better than the fight, and that was Dale Davis. Now, mm. Dale, da- I'm, and to be perfectly honest, Dale Davis wasn't walking around trying to get in a fight with anybody. He was about as mild mannered as there as a person as I've ever met. But a guy that once the game started, that you don't mess with him. Because, you know, he put his team first. And opponents realize that. But also at the same time in practice, you don't cross the line or he's going to speak up. And when Dale Davis spoke up, mm-hmm. that's when you knew that something was going on. Because this dude was just, I mean, you know, he only had like, he had a huge vocabulary. and He was a great businessman. But sometimes you wondered if he only had two words and what's up. <laughs> if he was just, he got along with everybody. He was mild-mannered. Off the basketball floor, he was about as quiet a person as, as I've ever played with or known in the NBA. But he had a fiery side to him. But anybody that knows Dale Davis and how big and strong he was, it just that's just the guy you didn't mess with. But occasionally, some guys tried for one reason or another, and they learned the hard way that that was a mistake. So there's the dysfunction in, in Portland. But just back to Chicago for one for one moment, the – I've always been fascinated by the idea that the the Jordan Rules book comes out in 1992. And I know a few years ago, someone wrote an article and said it was the ultimate Woj bomb at the time. Um, being a member of the team and all these revelations, I mean, you pick a page on on the Jordan Rules book and there is just gossip and chaos and all, all this wild stuff going on when we didn't hear about it regularly through social media. Um, what was it like on the team when all this stuff came to light um, in Sam Smith's book? You know, a lot of it, some of that stuff we didn't know about, that, you know, all the stuff that was happening behind the scenes. I mean, at, at this point now, everybody knows who Sam Smith's source was. It was Phil Jackson. Right. And Phil Jackson was the great manipulator of the media because back then there was no social media. There was no cell phones initially when all this stuff was happening, internet. So your only source of news was what came out in the paper the next day 
or what you saw on the uh, television that night. So those guys were kind of at the mercy of the Bulls organization and Phil Jackson. So Phil was very conniving in the things he let out. He worked relationships with these guys. He knew who he could trust and give information to. And it was one of those things you always thought, how did Sam Smith get this information? Who's he talking to? And everybody always denied it. Not me. Not me. Not me. But, you know, eventually it all came out. But, you know, it, and the one thing I'll say about the Bulls is we were not dysfunctional at all. I mean, we got in fights a lot. And it wasn't just, you know, me getting punched by Michael Jordan or Steve Kerr. Or, but that was something that had to do with competition. That's how competitive our teams were. That's what made our teams so good. But at the same time, you had a bunch of guys that were mature enough who cared enough about winning that they realized that, you know, I can't win without this guy or I can't win without that guy. I may not like that guy, and I don't hang out with that guy off the floor, but I need that guy. And, guys, and then the guy that initially figured it out first was Michael Jordan. And then once he figured it out, everybody else figured it out. And then the Bulls started winning championships. We had altercations. And I don't want to use the word fight because there's really the NBA players don't fight. We had altercations in practice all the time because of how competitive it was. Not only were you fighting for playing time, but you're also fighting respect from your teammates. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have days off back then. And we didn't have, you know, uh, load management and stuff like that. I mean, we practiced every day. We basically took one day off a week. And then if you played a game on Sunday, which we did a lot, we got no days off because Sunday was usually that day off. You know, we didn't have all these rules in the collective bargaining agreement, you know, that you have to have days off and you can only do this and you can only do that. So, you know, it got hot, it got heated, guys were tired, but yet, that carried over to make us a better team that when we stepped on the floor the day of a game, the night of a game, you know, as long as that guy next to me could help me win, I didn't really care. You know, I'm not saying he didn't care about that individual, but you know, I may not like him, but he can help me win. And when this game's over, I don't have to hang out with him. And that given how, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I was saying and that's what made these teams so good and so competitive and how we went 62 and, and 20 and 72 and 10. I wasn't on that team, but that's just, that was a culture that had developed within that organization. Given how successful Michael was at, at everything, what's it like from afar seeing him fail as an owner? Well, I look at it two ways. One, I I felt really sorry for him about what happened in Washington because I just don't think he realized what was going on and how, you know, they were using him in that situation. And I think he learned from that situation. But I also felt that he learned that in order to really do what I want to do, I have to invest my own money. It has to really be mine. Washington, I think he, you know, he realized he was just, they were using him for notoriety and what he could bring the organization. Now that he's with Charlotte, 
I think that it, you know, it, 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 that is a tough question, Noah, because, you know, like I said, I felt sorry for him about what happened in Washington and I, how I feel he got used by the organization. I mean, what's going on in Charlotte, That that's on him. And I always wonder, you know, if he has the right guys working for him. Does he have somebody, does he have the right guys that are willing to stand up to him? And that's not just him. That's just every organization. Do you have the right guy that has the balls to step up to you and say, hey, you're making a huge mistake? Because usually when you have to challenge an owner or a general manager or something like that, you better be 100% sure that you're doing the right thing because there's a possibility you could lose your job. And are you more concerned about being right and doing the right thing for the organization? Or are you more concerned about job security? You know, there's a lot of organizations out there that have a lot of yes men, but that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't help that organization get better. It helps the organization stay afloat. It helps guys keep jobs, but it just, it just seems like they're continually make mistakes in that organization. And, and that's unfortunate, but you can't really feel sorry for somebody that's necessarily put himself in that position. And he's ultimately the one that either writes off on that and agrees with it or disagrees and says, no. How involved do you think he is on a day-to-day basis? I don't know. I know he's, you know, at the games a lot, not all of them. But I don't think as much as, as I would think that he needs to be because I would think that some of these things that happen that, you know, him being the competitor that he is, and this is the intricacies I don't know from a standpoint of money and everything that goes on, but from the competitive standpoint that he is and how much he wants to win and how much he's pretty much won at all costs throughout his whole life, has that view and his approach changed? Or are there just so many things that are involved in trying to win that I, as an individual outside looking in, just will never be able to understand, or is he just not taking as much control as he should in order to get that organization to where he probably wants it to be and where it should be? What's it like, Will, being a, an analyst at NBC Sports Chicago, seeing the, the state of the team, and, and you've seen the team go through so many iterations of itself, not just you know, not just over the past few years, but even when you played and when you went back there for the year, but what's it like being an analyst for a network covering the team when you know what the team used to be like? It's hard. I mean, it's really hard. I mean, I've caught a lot of flack because people are like, oh, man, why are you so hard on the team? Give the team a break. And I'm like, oh, hold on a minute. Let's be very clear here. I personally want nothing more for this team than for them to win. I want nothing more for this team than to get back to where they were, winning championships, putting themselves in a position to compete for a championship. That's what I want for this organization, first and foremost, for the the Chicago Bulls and the San Antonio Spurs. But I also feel like that as an analyst, it's my job to be honest and forthright about what I see 
give my opinion on it, and try to understand what exactly is going on. Now, the one thing I did when I first took the job was is just, hey, A, B, and C. But sometimes I didn't necessarily do my homework. I just went off past experience. Well, I, don't, you, I realized you can't always do that because, as I mentioned with the Michael Jordan situation, sometimes there are circumstances that prevent things from happening or what you would like to happen to happen. So I felt it was necessary to then educate myself a little more about the comings and goings of the actual Bulls organization and try to get their opinion at the same time. Now, I didn't necessarily, I'm not saying I became a yes man, but at the same time now, I try to focus more on the big picture instead of that particular game or a particular instance. But at the end of the day, and I've had this conversation with my boss with, uh, at uh, NBC Sports Chicago. I've had it with uh, Mark Shinowski, my partner. I've had this conversation with, with uh, you know, my wife numerous times. There's been times where I've come home from a, after doing a game, And this past season was one of them, you know, during this rebuild where they went through a five-game stretch where it was just, they they played bad. You saw nothing that indicated they were going in the right direction. You know, they fired Fred Hoiberg. I mean, where I was up at two or three in the morning wondering, you know, what the hell's going on and where are we going? Because of the fact, as you mentioned, Noah, this team has Raptors. I mean, this team has banners hanging in the rafters that talk about numerous championships. And there are certain organizations, Chicago, Boston, Miami, Golden State, the Lakers, teams, organizations that have won numerous championships that I feel are held to a different standard. And the Bulls are, as I mentioned, one of those teams because of the history and the past and the tradition that developed. So it makes it difficult, you know, at times to watch, to go through and be part of a rebuild because I say part of because I'm an analyst during the rebuild. So I've had to really kind of pull back a little bit and go back and rewatch games at times, removing my emotions from the equation and say, hey, is an individual getting better? Is the team actually getting better because they're even though they're losing? Because at times when you watch a game and you watch the way a play develops or something an individual does or continually does or mistakes that an organization may may or may not make, you know, if you allow your emotions to get into it, you're going to put your foot in your mouth a lot. And I've had to kind of pull the reins back a little bit and kind of be, be, try to look at the bigger picture and try to make an assessment about whether this is actually helping or is a detriment and just give an honest opinion about what is going on. Okay, so when you take a step back and take a a bigger picture look, what has to change with the current state of the Bulls organization? Well, I think we're now in a situation where these players have to step up. I understand they're young. And I understand that, uh, you know, the majority of the core is less than 30 years old. But the most dangerous word in this business and in professional sports, whether it's NBA, Major League Baseball, NFL, is potential. And this team has the potential to be really good, but at the same time, really young. And somehow we got to find a way to stay healthy, 
and allow these players in Zach Levine, Lowry Marketing, Wendell Carter Jr., Otto, Otto Porter, allow these guys to play numerous games together to truly get an honest assessment of what this team really is and how talented they really are. I mean, I know what it looks like on paper, but that's on paper. And because of injury, we, we just don't know what this team really is. We've seen instances where they went through a stretch and, and were impressive where they won seven out of 10, but that's also aggravating as well because you see what this team can be, but because of the youth, they can't sustain, you know, what they're doing. And then they get injured and another guy gets injured. And then that guy gets healthy and another guy gets injured. So there's now, in my opinion, more responsibility on the players going in forward in this upcoming year because of the potential that they have, because of what Zach Levine says he wants to be, because of what, you know, Lowry Marketing has shown and what he, what he needs to be. And Otto Porter Jr., because of the trade and what he's supposed to provide. So now the players have to step up to the plate. Jim Boylan has to prove that he is a NBA head coach and has the ability to motivate these players. And as he talks about, take them to areas where they're uncomfortable, but yet make them better. And the front office of John Paxson and Gar have to do the better job of getting players. I think they've done an excellent job over the years with the draft. I think they've done a nice job of bringing guys now to boister the bench. But now can they sustain that and make the necessary trades to send the message to me, other former players, but also the fans, we're all in and we're continuing. We're past the rebuild phase to, hey, we're now a playoff team, but we're continuing to move towards being a contender and not a pretender. And before we get into the the catch and shoot question, which closed out all, all of our podcast, Adam has a unhealthy crush on Kobe White after being at a bunch of Kobe White's pre-draft workouts out in out in California. So if if his obsession for Kobe means, you know, X number of wins for the Bulls, um, I, I think the Bulls are going to win the title this year. That's that's how much. That's <laughs> and if you could get me an autograph, Will, that'd be great. Thanks. Yeah, I, I, actually, I don't. I think he'd. I think he'd like autograph sweaty socks. That's how much. That's how much he loves them. <laughs> so our catch and shoot question is: game on the line. Who from all of your teammates, going back your thirteen year career, and you can't choose Jordan? Who do you want taking the final shot in a catch and shoot situation? Of all my former teammates. Mm-hmm. Not not including Jordan. I mean, that's the obvious answer, but game on the line. Or, so let me ask you this: you got you got to be more defined there. Okay, <laughs> game seven. Okay, you're, draw, you're but, drawing up. You're drawing up a final play, and the play but results. Are you, but. Are we talking about because it's called the catch and shoot? Are we talking about somebody that's going to catch and shoot it? Are we talking yeah. about somebody that's going to catch and put it on the deck? Going one, you know, it's now it's an isolation lead. <laughs> Holy shit, Will. Catch and shoot. <laughs> you, catch it. It. you catch it and okay. shoot it. But this, these days of social media, I want to make sure everybody understands, and I, I totally understand the parameters, but, you know, I know how you guys can just manipulate Hirsty, this. Just pick Hersey Hawkins and move on with it. <laughs> I'm going with John Paxson. Okay. Wow. 
And what and aside from his the actual shooting stroke, what what makes you go with Paxson? Because of his consistency. If you go back and you look at his numbers, the year we won our first championship against LA, it was unbelievable. I mean, in my opinion, the guy was one of the, the better shooters that I played with. Now, he was a lower body shooter, shot with his legs. But if you put him in a situation where he could catch and shoot, bingo, he was going to knock it down. I think in that Lakers series in the finals, he shot like 60%. And most of his shots were from behind the arc. He shot, he shot 65% from the floor in that series. Incredible. Yeah. And most of his shots were from behind the arc. Now, the one thing about podcasts, and you guys love stories, I used to always sit at the end of the bench with three guys, Michael, Paxson, and then whoever else, Cliff would be down there, Bobby Hansen, whoever else was kind of coming and going on one-year one deals, two-year deals. But the one guy that really kind of took me under his wing and would sit at the end of the bench was John Paxson. Now, granted, Paxson started, MJ started. So when MJ was out of the game, he sat on the very last seat, and I would sit in the second seat. But then if MJ and Pax were out at the same time, I'd sit in the third seat. But a lot of times when Pax would come out of the games and MJ was still in the game, he would sit on the end and I'd sit next to him. And one of the things that we used to always talk about is, is that we needed to get John Paxson one of those helmets with a blinking light. And then we would just sit on the bench and whenever he was open, we would just press the button so the light would go off so that the other guys would pass him the damn ball because he was open so much. So needless to say, as well as Pax shot against the Lakers, he never said this publicly, but he basically told me and everybody else on the team, he says, I've known I can do this forever, but because you blankety blanks would never pass me the damn ball, nobody knew I could shoot like this. Well, now they do. Well, now they do, but also what people also don't know is John Paxson got to go on the Today Show because of the fact that he was able to shoot at a clip of 65% and knock down a bunch of big shots and the Bulls mm -hmm. won their first championship. But what most people don't know is, is that we were also on the West Coast and celebrated all night and Pax was on no sleep. And when you asked John Paxson what his interview consisted of on the Today Show, he had no idea. He couldn't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but he wasn't, he, wasn't he, thinking, he wasn't thinking about a Today Show interview when you guys were celebrating. Oh, absolutely not. But at the same time, he's like, I'm just glad I didn't say anything to embarrass myself. <laughs> All right. You can follow Will on Twitter. He's at Will underscore Purdue 32. And you can watch him on the, the Bulls broadcast. You can hear him on Westwood One Radio. I think he's an outstanding analyst. And he's a good friend. Will, we appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. But no, I have one more question before we go. Oh, you got a question. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And Adam, thank you for allowing me to be on the catch and shoot. But I really need to know this. This is going to thank you. This is going to, this is something I have to know. Who does a better interview? And I'm not talking about the interview -er, but the person being interviewed me yeah. or your daughter. Oh, good Ooh. question. This is a good, good question. question. Um, 
Because I've heard a couple hmm. of your podcasts where you've interviewed your daughter, and she's done an outstanding She's job. good. Thank you, Will. Yeah, she's she's good. I do think I do think your stories are a bit more coherent, and uh, <laughs> and well and well and well thought out. Um, but I am I am taking her to her first WNBA game this weekend, and she is she's pumped. She's pumped. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah, she's pumped. So hopefully you uh, can, you'll be able to answer all her questions. Exactly, and then also then interview her about her experience, and then after that I'll be able to properly answer your question. Because okay, right now, because yeah, right can, now I think it's close. You can text me your answer. I will. I will. I will. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, no, Will Purdue, awesome stuff out of him. I know you guys have gone back a long time. Um, do you have any good uh, stories? Your interaction with uh, Will Purdue on the road, dinners, anything like that? We did have a we did have a great meal during a finals. What year was that? I think it might have even been '06 in Miami. I do remember sitting outside having a great meal, having uh, really good scallops outside. But anyway, I met Will when I was an intern at the NBA, and he was doing pre and post and halftime stuff with Mark Kestisher on ESPN Radio. Sure. And Mark is now the the lead voice on ESPN Radio for the NBA. And Will's just uh, we 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 met. We got introduced through uh, my friend Ann Wright, who worked in the PR department at the time at the NBA. And when I've just stayed in touch ever since, just a good guy. He told me once that he was on the plane and in the back of the Bulls plane is where Michael and the other guys would play high stakes stuff. And at the front of the plane is where Will and some of the other guys played dollar, basically like dollar poker. And Michael came up to the front of the plane once and Will said, what are you doing? Like, why are you? Like, why are you wasting our time? And he said, I just want you to spend time on this plane knowing that I have your money in my pocket. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. And Will was just like, all right, man, do your thing. <laughs> like he was going to take, you know, a few $1 bills from, from Will Purdue and, from Will Purdue and those guys. Um, yeah, but Will Will was Will was terrific. Anything in particular outside of the NBA world that's entertaining you this week? You know, I always like to listen to really good interviews on some of the New York stations. Um, you know, the Breakfast Club and some of those uh, morning hip hop stations that actually have some really good interviews. And so, obviously, the Andre Iguodala one, and then of course, Andre Iguodala has dealt, and everyone wants to claim that the reason that he's becoming a Grizzly is some of the things that he said on his Breakfast Club right. interview. Right with Charlemagne and, and company. But um, actually, you know, I saw a movie Last Black Man in San Francisco this week and it was a little bit long um, and it wasn't perfect, but I will say it's pretty remarkable. The, the stunning performance by the lead actor and this guy, Jimmy Fails, who uh, helped write it along with Joe Talbot, who was the director and obviously the other writer on this thing. But Jimmy Fails, he even goes by his own name in, and he stars in this film. And it's just an incredible performance. These guys have been writing this thing for like 10 years. They're in their 20s and they put this beautiful movie together. And uh, again, not perfect. And it's a little bit long, but his performance, I think, is something to check out. So Last Black Man in San Francisco was, was pretty awesome film to uh, see this performance out of this kid. Jimmy Fails, unreal. In theaters? At least it is here. I, it's an indie okay. film. It's it's here in theaters. I don't know if okay. it's reached, it you know, this uh, that small town that you live in, New York City. Yeah, yeah but, I'll, um, I'll, I'll take a look. I'll take a look. Um, something that, that Marissa and I DVR 
every week and have for years and something I grew up watching is CBS Sunday morning. So mm. I'd suggest everybody just DVRing it and then watching it because the pieces themselves are fairly evergreen, especially especially the interview stuff. But you always come out of that learning something about anything. So I and so whether it's some on the road segment in small town America, like the story about the last student in a one-room schoolhouse and she was a class of one at age 13 now she's going to go off to boarding school that i heard this week off this small island in massachusetts was great uh one about elon musk and trying to get to mars so there's always something there it's an hour and a half show i recommend everybody dvring that on sunday mornings on cbs that's awesome that's awesome uh no you want to thank everyone this time around oh yeah 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 favorite part uh all of our producers all of their spouses and children since they all have hands bruce in the, bernstein uh, scott Turkin, mike lieber joining the program today everybody everybody from the entire pure hoops media team and also remember to check out mike wise show and buckets boards and blocks and pure hoops show with eric newman and bj armstrong and make sure you're not just listening to the episodes. Subscribe. Click the five stars if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And it takes actually 30 seconds to click five stars and leave a 12-word review. And it means a lot. Well, you're the best co-host ever, Noah. So uh, glad to work that, with you. That, all right, that should be your review. You should there write you that. go. That's my that. review. All right, man. Have a good week. You as well. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. 